0: The academic year is winding down at schools and at colleges, and what a year it's been. For today's episode, we're focusing on final exams and whether they should change in this moment of disruption, and maybe even beyond. You'll be hearing an encore of an episode we originally ran last July, but it's one of my favorite episodes with lots of surprises, and it's just as timely now since educators are still sorting through these same questions. First, a quick note about what we're up to at the EdSurge podcast. If you haven't checked it out, we recently started a new EdSurge podcast newsletter. This is something lots of podcasts do. Um, and if you sign up, you'll get an email every time we drop a new episode. And there are links in there about related articles and to information. You can dive deeper on whatever topic we're looking at this week to sign up. Go to edsearch.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right. And next week, stay tuned, we will have the next installment of our Bootstraps podcast series. We're co-producing that with our friends at another nonprofit newsroom, Open Campus. And if you missed the first episode, consider it your homework to go back and listen to that um, before you, you check out next week's. We're excited about this series where we're exploring narratives around who gets what educational opportunities in this country, and how it could all be different. But for now, here is the encore episode, Should Instructors Rethink Final Exams? So we all know what happened last semester. Right around spring break, the COVID-19 pandemic hit and forced colleges around the country to shutter their campuses and shift teaching online. Professors were forced to quickly adapt and pretty much throw out any planning they had done for the rest of the semester. For some educators, that sudden shift led to some soul-searching about what college teaching is really all about. That was the case for Stephanie Bailey, an assistant professor at Chapman University. She was teaching an intro physics course, going over concepts like electricity and magnetism. But after the pandemic, she decided to scrap the final exam she had planned, which would have been a series of problems for students to work out. Giving that traditional test just didn't feel right anymore with all the things the students were going
1: through. Um, Many students felt huge anxieties uh, and pressures uh, associated with uh, their futures and and their careers and and what COVID and the pandemic uh, meant uh, for them in the short and long term. Um, So uh, I wanted to be very sensitive to uh, all of these challenges and different challenges that certainly every student was facing, and I didn't... I didn't believe that uh, a a traditional written exam uh, would um, appropriately and adequately
0: address uh, those challenges. So here's what she did instead of that traditional final. She partnered with a senior living home in town and assigned each student to do a one-on-one Zoom call with a resident. It was community service since these seniors were pretty much on lockdown, not able to receive visitors and cut off from their usual outside contacts. What did that have to do with physics? Well, the students were supposed to explain some of the concepts they'd learned in class. I was super curious what the students thought of this idea when they first heard about it. So I called up one of the students in the class, Natalie Riccardi.
2: Yeah, you know, I I was excited to incorporate that aspect into our final because I mean, I've never seen that done before ever. Uh, But at the same time, I was thinking, you know, how, how am I going to talk to visit talk about physics with someone who possibly has maybe never taken a physics course, or I mean, it's also not a middle school or high school level physics, it's college level calculus based physics. And so it was definitely on my mind. I was just thinking, how am I going to make this understandable for somebody who is maybe very, um, very blind to the physics world, which is understandable (laughs) because, you know, even when I first started doing it, I mean, I never took a physics course before having Dr. Bailey in college. And so, I just remember how I felt when I first started learning. And I was absolutely deer in the headlights. Wow, it's a lot. And so, yeah, I was definitely a little bit anxious to talk to them and um, see how they would receive the conversation.
0: The students weren't the only ones with some anxiety about this idea. Some folks in the department had tough questions about the approach. To be clear, the students did have to write an essay about what they talked about with their conversation partners in the senior living home, And these essays were supposed to demonstrate some of the concepts they'd learned. But there's still the question, is this an appropriate way to assess student learning? It turns out there is a small movement of professors who argue that even when we're not in a pandemic, it's time to do away with the traditional final exams as we know them, and replace them with something far more memorable and experiential, and even surprising. One professor calls the approach epic finales. And it raises deep questions about what's supposed to happen in classrooms, whether in person or virtual. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. And today we are looking at what happens when final exams are ditched and replaced by this idea of the epic finale. And stay tuned because you are in for plenty of surprising examples of what professors have tried and how students have responded. There will be giant monoliths trained chickens, and robotic talking trash cans. You can't make this stuff up, folks. But first, let's get back to Natalie, that student. She's 19 years old, and and after just one semester of learning some basic physics, she was asked to teach it to a man in his late 80s. How did that go?
2: I was matched with a man named Gene, and he was absolutely wonderful. It, It was so fun to talk to him. And I say that because, you know, I think both parties were a little nervous because this was such a new thing. I, again, had never seen anything like this done. And um, Gene didn't have a physics background. He had never taken a physics class before in his life. And so I had a really big challenge on my hands trying to, like you said, be a teacher and also explain it at a level that was understandable and tangible for him. Um, and so it was really quite amazing because when we started talking about it he actually was very engaged and he started asking me questions that were related to the concepts that I was trying to explain to him and he was even using different like hand movements to uh basically and like act out magnetism and attractive and repulsive forces and it was really awesome to see him actually want to talk about it because I, I know that uh, maybe that wasn't the case for all of the residents.
0: As the student later wrote in her essay for her professor, not everything she tried worked.
2: When I was trying to explain the concept of electric fields and uh, magnetism and different things like that, I was trying to use a metaphor about cheese and uh, about how, you know, there's different French cheeses, right? And you have some cheese that has a really strong smell and some people love the cheese and some people hate it. And so the cheese was basically a source charge in a, in physics terms. And um, the people who love the cheese were oppositely charged particles. <laughs> and the people who hated it were particles that had the same charge. So they repelled. So anyways, I went on to explain a little bit of that. And we talked about that for a while. And I just remember, after saying that entire metaphor, I I, I said, Gene, did that make any sense? And he was like, not really. <laughs> so we backed up and talked about it more. But yeah, I spoke on that for a, a long while, just because that that was really fun to uh, try and be the teacher and uh, have him be engaged. <laughs>
0: For the professor, Stephanie Bailey, the main point was to do something for students that will be far more lasting than a typical time sitting in front of a blue book.
1: I believe it was an experience that was memorable and, and that will stick with many of my students for years to come. Uh, they they built relationships that they wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, they, again, they developed a sense of community and a sense of belonging. I believed many of them gained self-awareness. Um, it, I think these... Um, these conversations with their seniors possibly influenced career paths or at least reaffirmed that um, the, their choice, um, say pre-med or physical therapy, is indeed what they want to
0: do. Still, the experiment was not without challenges. For one, the professor faced some questions from colleagues. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely experiencing a lot of resistance, um, you know, and
1: um, At our uh, university, we teach uh, multiple sections of the same course at the same time. And for that reason, it's important to have consistency across all sections so that students don't perceive uh, unfairness across sections. Uh, And so that that presents an obstacle with one instructor or professor wanting to um, try approach A, um, while the the other uh, instructors um, would, would like to pursue approach B. Uh, so there, there, are, um, there are
0: obstacles uh, in the way. And even this professor admits that more research is needed. We, we definitely need a probably a formal assessment
1: of uh, these types of approaches to prove that they are just as effective as the traditional exam. And I have not had the opportunity to do that
0: yet. But Bailey is not alone in rethinking the final exam. In fact, she was inspired to do this by an essay that ran in the Chronicle of Higher Education a few years ago. That essay was by Anthony Kreider, a physics professor at Elan University. And he's the one who coined that term, epic finales. In that article, he laid out his vision for this idea. And among the elements he thinks every epic finale should have are a sense of mystery and what he calls awesomeness. I, I just had to call him up to hear more.
3: Over the course of several years teaching, uh, a variety of different classes from regular basic, um, astrophysics to up to some more interesting classes, uh, that I was teaching with a philosophy professor about, uh, the search for extraterrestrials. We started to think, and I started to explore, how could you better use that time? Like what's a better way to end the semester? One of the most depressing things that uh, happened when I was teaching regular astronomy was I'd have a great semester And I'd be giving a multiple choice exam in class and students that I really grew to care about would sort of walk out of the classroom and whisper, whisper goodbye. And that's the last I'd ever see them. Like that's the end of my experience with them is them whispering and sneaking out of the room because at some point, you know, they have to be quiet because everyone else is quiet. And that just seemed a terrible, terrible way to end a semester. Like, like you've done all these cool things if you have some sort of experiential learning or engaged learning to sort of end on such a, a quiet note. There's so many other ways and times that we can give regular tests. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be regular tests at some point uh, to grade that, but that shouldn't be the last three hours that you spend with your students in a semester. I mean, the, you could do something much more engaging or boisterous or creative. And so, I started to tinker with that over time. And I was inspired by a colleague in uh, art history uh, who was giving exams where she would just present a piece of artwork and say, tell me about it. And I wanted to try and find more and more simplistic uh, exams and open-ended exams uh, that uh, I might give to students.
0: So it is very hard to quickly describe these, these finals that Kreider's cooked up. So I'm going to have him
3: tell you some examples. Uh, in one exam uh, for the, uh, the class about extraterrestrials and the search for them, uh, students were just told, show up. I'm not going to tell you anything about this exam. Just show up on the last day and maybe wear comfortable shoes. And when they arrived in the room, uh, there was an eight-foot-tall black monolith. No desks, no chairs. Four cameras pointing at it, and they had to figure out what to do. Uh,
0: What did they have to do?
3: I'll tell you what they did. Um, So for the first 30 minutes, uh, they just kind of were frenetic. Like, they were taking selfies with it. They were texting their parents. They were knocking on it because they thought I was inside this box. Uh, They really... Which, uh, I was not in the box. I was... In fact, I wasn't even in the building. I was... Uh, off at a completely different location because I knew if I was there, I would interrupt it. I'd, just, I mean, I'd feel like I had to jump in. I'm like, no, nope, they're on their, their own. They got to do this. Uh, so that was about 30 minutes. The next 30 minutes, they started to get their act together and look for other clues. And so some of them stayed in the in the room uh, to see if there were any weird mathematical clues. And they found that there's like one blue marker and four red markers, and nine green markers. One, four, nine, which is one squared, two squared, and three squared. And Like, oh, that's that's a clue. Like, that's trying to tell us something. And it was. I'd left that as a clue. Like, that's the dimensions of the monolith. And then some of them went across campus looking for a second monolith, which they never found. Uh, Eventually, they all came back into the room, and they did something that I would have never expected. Uh, And it sort of warmed my heart and i think it was a sort of they were started to do exactly what you would want them to do they n- knocked the monolith over treated it like a conference table and sat around asking each other what did we learn in this class like how is how have we changed as people over the past semester do you, do do you believe in in aliens like do you well what about you and and they really started to interrogate each other about what had happened to them over the semester, unprompted. Wait, so... I- All we did was put a black box in the room.
0: Let me ask you this. So, it almost sounds too good to be true. And how did that go? I mean, how did they... When they say, like, oh, we're talking about... Do you mean it just kind of... They were just... They were talking, and it turned out they were talking about the content of the course and, like, what and disagreements they might have had or thoughts they had about
3: it. They had two hours for that piece of the exam. And so, I mean... The, but I will tell you, the first 30 minutes was chaos and selfies and... and uh, and then that went away and they came back to trying to find more information. And then they came into the, that next 30 minutes of trying to um, uh, see how they changed. And then the last 30 minutes, like, we put a lot of cement blocks in. I was working with Anthony Weston, who was a philosophy professor. We put a lot of cement blocks in that thing so they wouldn't move it. But they kind of stonehenged that thing out that because like, you have, you know, 20 college students. They were gonna move it. And they decided they wanted to share it with the campus. And so they sort of slid it out the room, down the stairs and out into the quad. Uh, because they wanted the rest of the campus to see it.
0: It's such a crazy story. And you know, I guess I can imagine some listeners, people in college, just thinking, Well, you're not you're not doing it right. You're not testing them. How do we know which student knew what? Like Here,
3: this is exactly uh, where what where that first semester we set up uh, four cameras in the room uh, to sort of see what was happening there, and we didn't have much more than that. Uh, but then we realized in the subsequent years that uh, all of our students had iPhones, and so oh, in the previous or the subsequent years, we would say, Please submit a five minute video uh, just showing what you've done, and we've never repeated the. The format of the exam. It's always very different sorts of things.
0: It turns out that wasn't even the strangest example of his style of course finale. Uh,
3: One semester that I'd built this uh, robotic talking trash can uh, that would ask that when they would stare into it, it looked like a wormhole and would ask them, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And it was trying to get them to realize that they're not just, you know, Bob, I'm a psychology major. It's like they're part of this species that's sort of related to other species that have existed over time. And so if aliens were asking that, you have to sort of look at yourself in the context of space and time and all the uh, all of the other humans on Earth, but all the uh, other species we've evolved from. Uh, and they got that, but it took them a few hours to sort of figure that out, uh, talking to, to that stupid trash can. That took me forever to build that thing. Uh, uh, but it was pretty impressive by the time I had it uh, in terms of the lights. And the, there's a screen at the bottom. Uh, there were pictures of various uh, various humans coming up in the, in the bottom of the screen, but also animals that we or humans had evolved from. Uh, I've run this in another class. Um, one of them was set up to be, it was a class not about aliens, but about protest movements. And we sort of studied the protest movements of the earth, Uh, early part of the last century within um, the suffrage movement uh, in New York City and looked at the 60s and then looked at modern protests. And at the end, everybody, everyone knew that I ran epic finales. And they're like, well, you got to have a protest, but how could I ethically make them protest some real cause? And I, I was really stuck. Like I can't, make them protest something that, uh, you know, because whatever it is, they're not, you know, some students will really disagree with that. And that could be easily picked up. But I could easily see that on Fox News. Like Elon University professor requires his students to protest for. So I thought about what's the most abstract thing that one might protest. Numbers like numbers, that's as abstract as you can get. So they all had random numbers. And then I staged a March of Primes. the the really odd rally, and the numerical square protest for three different sections, and uh, it was surprising. It was very surprising because they all said, "We're not going to get into this. Like, like this is this is just numbers." And 30 minutes into it, it was intensely real. I'm so glad that that thing didn't last the full two hours because students started to feel the feels for you know while they're out there uh, in the hot sun. Uh, wearing the colors that they chose to represent primes versus knots and and uh, versus or primes versus the other numbers. And they really got into it much more than they thought. We went back to the classroom to try to sort of piece that together.
0: What is the biggest win for you? What do you think is the reason to, to go to all that trouble to make a talking robot trash can?
3: I want to see what students Learned and how they changed in my class, and if I make up a multiple choice question and ask them, "How would you behave in a certain situation?" They'll read the question. They'll they might just answer what they think I'm looking for. To instead create a situation to see what they would actually do in some scenario is tells me more than about them than what they can tell me about themselves. Um, an example I gave, uh, a year ago, my, my daughter was, um, uh, uh, watching Westworld. I don't know if you're familiar with the premise of Westworld, but in the end, it, you know, the, the short version is there are a bunch of robots that are treated very poorly by humans. And when she watched that, she's like, dad, like they're, they're, you know, why are they so, you know, why are they doing that? Why would they do that to, to, to robots? But then fast forward a few months and she's playing Red Dead Redemption And taking the characters in Red Dead Redemption, just sort of walking them onto the railroad tracks and letting the train uh, run over them and splatter with blood. And she's just sort of, you know, playing with the game like it's a a sandbox. And I'm like, like, Zoe, don't you realize that you're sort of, you know, treating those artificial creatures rather poorly? But dad, it's just a game. They're not real. Like, and so what she had said, she, her... Thoughts were and values were, were different than what Red Dead what she actually did in Red Dead to Redemption, and that's what I'm trying to see in my students. Like, do they live up to the standards that uh, they claim that they have lived up to? Um, and usually, you find out. Like, usually, you see, you know, how they'll behave and and what and what they'll do. Have you ever had it fail?
0: Right? Have you have this a group of students just not do what you this magical
3: reaction? Uh, well, I mean, the students react differently. And uh, back uh, during one of the very early ones, uh, it sort of gave us the definition of what it means to fail at one of these things. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was one, unlike the monolith one, which was very open. Like we didn't know what to expect from that. But I, but when I was talking with Anthony, I'm like, we have to have something that's a little bit more multiple choicey without being multiple choice. Uh, previously that semester, they run a scenario. In class, where half the students were aliens and half of them were humans. And the students that were humans captured the aliens and ended up selling them as pets back on Earth to fund their missions to explore the galaxy. And that, I mean, the students playing the aliens were just distraught, you know, because they'd sort of crafted the civilization. And when we were sort of doing the debriefing on that, they're like, yeah, you know humans, humans are pretty shitty people, or <laughs> they're pretty, hu- and they're pretty shitty to each other. We promise we will be better. We will treat creatures with dignity. We will treat others with dignity. That's what they said. Uh, I wanted to know if it was true or not. And so for their final exam, uh, that I had, I trained three chickens, uh, to eat and to come up to the door, uh, and they had two, I had two, well, let me backtrack. I had two white vans show up to their classroom. The white vans drove them to a house. They knock on the door of the house. A garage door opens up. When they walk through the garage door, there are three chickens that run up to greet them because I trained the chickens for two months to do that. In the backyard, there's a table with three chicken pizzas Barbecue chicken pizzas, three cheese pizzas, and a bowl of sunflower seeds. One of the students, uh, said, I think, I think, you know, do, do chickens eat sunflower seeds? And he started to question the group. Uh, but then another student, uh, said, I think we're just supposed to eat. Like, there's a video camera on this whole thing, but, but she's just like, I think we're supposed to eat. And all that pizza was gone within five minutes. Um... I mean, the goal was that they would realize like this was the chickens' planet, like this was their world, and they were intruders into it. They and I trained the chickens to that if I if they'd sat down, they could have eaten these sunflower seeds with the chickens because they were sunflower seeds I bought at the grocery store, or at least don't eat the chicken pizza in front of the chickens. Uh, but in that group, sort of just out of camera, but you could see it if you watched it. There was one student that was just chasing the chickens around like who who does that like that's like that that's not just something that uh, you should have learned not to do but just if you'd showed up on the first day of class you wouldn't do that don't kick the chicken like and that became the mantra that I for future um, classes when I would teach them like when I would tell them about the epic finales I would say as you're taking this finale I can't tell you anything about it but don't kick the chicken. Like, be thoughtful in what you do. Uh, think about the what your behavior is. Talk about what your behavior is. Uh, don't just be mindless and just, you know, go, go to your baser instincts. And in every class, there's one or two students that metaphorically kicks the chicken. Maybe it's ripping the head off of the robot, not... Thinking about you know like oh let's look inside. Well, wait, why why are you ripping the head off of that? That's not not good. And but that's what we're I'm hoping to see. I make I don't make this worth a lot of their their final grade. Like I really I it doesn't it's not meant to be punitive. It's not it's meant for me to understand like how I failed or succeeded in teaching them what I was hoping to teach them.
0: In the end, part of what he was hoping to teach these students was not just content but to be the kind of person who has empathy for chickens, or at least doesn't kick them. I'm guessing that general idea is probably familiar to many professors, even if they don't actually bring in trained chickens to find out. In this time of pandemic, I'm super interested in these questions that Kreider's raising. As colleges are planning to try to bring students back into classrooms in the fall in person, and to do that safely, there's going to be a lot of pressure to make sure that the time students and professors spend in the same room together is worth it. So should more professors try this kind of finale? Or if classes are forced online again, should this kind of spirit be brought to online teaching? I'm guessing that listeners out there might have some strong feelings, so I'd really love to hear them. Feel free to shoot a reaction to me on social media at JRYoung or to my email at jeff at edsurge.com. In the spirit of epic finales, I do have one more detail to share. It turns out that student we talked to at the top of the show, Natalie, she's still doing Zoom calls with folks at that senior living home she took it upon herself to volunteer to be matched with seniors all summer while she's at home studying for the medical college admissions test. And since that physics class is now over, and she's just doing this on her own, she's not coming up with metaphors about how magnetism is like French cheese.
2: Not about physics, no. There was <laughs> there was one resident who thought that my call was going to be about physics. And I I clarified that, no, it doesn't have to be about physics. Mostly, we just talk about life and, um, you know, sharing stories and getting to know each other a little bit and just having some human connection during this time.
0: That was the episode as it aired last summer. Now it's May 2021, and I'm back with a new finale for the episode. Just today, I called Anthony Kreider, the professor who coined that term, epic finales, to ask him what he is doing this term. We chatted briefly, and we didn't record our conversation. But I do want to give you a quick update on what he said. So he had planned to do one of his creative finales for a course he's teaching on galactic astronomy. But he decided this year, the students were just tired of surprises. So instead, he did this. He ran some optional evening sessions on astrophotography up on a roof, and I think they had a camera and set up and everything. And for each of those sessions that a student attended, they got to knock off one section of the exam. It's a five-part exam, and so that means every student kind of had a different length of their, of their exam time. Now, this exam was a traditional one, so no role-playing or trained chickens. So during the three-hour exam, he set up two lawn chairs outside the building, And he asked each student, as they came out, to sit with him for 10 minutes and just chat about what they got out of the semester and what their plans were for the summer. It's only got 15 students. And he said let him get some quality time with just about everybody. And because they were outside, they didn't have to wear masks. And he said it was the first time he had really got to see them face to face since uh, this whole pandemic thing was going on. Oh, he did have one small surprise. He gave everyone a choice. Of a piece of candy. Either a Milky Way, a Milky Way Dark, or a Starburst. I mean, hey, it's an astronomy class after all. That was the right way to spend the last three hours, Kreider told me. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one, and we have plenty of surprises coming your way in future episodes, so please do subscribe wherever you listen and sign up for that weekly newsletter we've got going at edsurge.com and click on newsletter at the top right. And you'll find EdSurge podcast newsletter on that list. And if you are a professor or a teacher who's changed how you do finals or grading in some interesting way this term, shoot me a quick email at jeff at edsurge.com. We'd love to hear about it. This episode was written and edited by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jr Young. We'll be back next week with more about how education is changing. Thanks so much for listening.